a somewhat challenging assignment today. Uh, most of you probably know that we are in a series uh, called Eyewitness News, where we are making our way through the New Testament book of Mark. We've been doing that for a while now. We come to Mark chapter 13 today, and there's only 16 chapters, and so uh, we're almost through the entire book of Mark. We will end the series on Easter weekend, which will be an awesome time together. Um, but chapter 13 is, is a challenging uh, chapter to deal with. It's known as the Olivet Discourse, and it's called that just because it took place on the Mount of Olives. But we're going to dive into some stuff here, so we're going to have to work a little hard this morning to unpack some of the things that are stated in there, okay? So if you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 13, verse 1. If you don't, you can follow along on the screen. This is what it says. As he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones... What magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, Jesus replied? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say what is ever given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now that's a lot to talk about for us today, all right? And there's two questions, it's not in your notes, but there's two questions that I want us to focus on today as we dive into this chapter, all right? The first question is, what was Jesus talking about? What was he referring to? What does he mean by the things he's saying? The second thing, and maybe more importantly, is what does it have to do with you and me? What does this have to do with us today. Now, part of what makes this such a challenging text is that Jesus is speaking prophetically. In other words, Jesus is talking to his disciples about something that at the time had not yet happened. It was in the future. It was going to happen, okay? Now, another part of what makes it hard to, to dive into and interpret is that throughout the chapter, Jesus uses Jewish apocalyptic language, which is not necessarily intended to be taken literally. So there's a lot of different opinions about what Jesus specifically was talking about, and the main piece that is debated is when did those events, how far into the future were they going to happen? All right, did they happen in 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed, including the temple, or are they still yet to happen, even in our day they haven't happened yet? 
okay? So, so there's a lot that make this complex. One of the most difficult things for us in dealing with this text is I only have about two hours with you this morning in order to unpack. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We're going to make our way through this quickly, but we're going to have to work, okay? So stay with me, all right? All right, here's where it begins. If you're taking notes, flip over on the back of your bulletin. You can jot this down. This chapter begins with a prophecy and a question. All right, it's important to understand this piece. Jesus makes a prophecy, and then the disciples ask a question. So Jesus and his disciples, they're walking out of the temple. His disciples are talking about how huge the buildings are and how magnificent the temple is. They comment to Jesus about the massive magnitude of this building, and Jesus says, you see all these buildings? They're all gonna be destroyed. In fact, there's not gonna be one stone left standing on another. Huge, huge statement that Jesus is making. In fact, it would be hard for us to overstate how huge of a statement this is, especially to Jewish people. Incredible statement. First of all, just because of the sheer size of the temple itself. Now keep in mind, this is a replica uh, of, the, of that temple. Keep in mind, they don't have a context of F-16s that can drop bombs on buildings and blow them up. That's not part of their world. So just the sheer size of the temple, it's staggering that Jesus would say not one stone would be left on another. Herod's temple has been under construction for 46 years to build this thing, and it's still not complete in Jesus' day. Okay, even incomplete though, it's one of the most beautiful buildings in all of the known world at that time. It is so large and so imposing, there's nothing like it for hundreds and hundreds of miles in any direction. In fact, there was a guy named Josephus who was a Jewish historian. This is how he described the temple. Listen to his language. He said, the exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye. In other words, it had everything. For being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from the solar rays. In other words, you needed sunglasses to look at this building. The gold reflected the sun so brightly off of the building, you couldn't stare at it. You needed sunglasses to look at it. He goes on to say, to approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain. For all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. So you're riding along on your donkey, miles and miles out of the city. You look up and you think, ooh, Long's Peak. Nope, it's the temple. It looks like a mountain covered with snow. Massive, massive building. And Jesus says, not one stone will be left standing on another. Huge statement. But even bigger than the physical size of the temple is the spiritual significance of the temple to a Jew. This is a huge part of, of the understanding here of why this was such a big statement. The temple for a Jew was the center of worship. It, it was what represented the presence of God with his people. It was the center of God's healing and restoring work in the world. All of it came down to the, to the temple. The temple was the center of their way of life and their understanding of God and what God was doing. 
All right? And Jesus, Jesus says it's going to be destroyed. Now, he didn't just pick the temple arbitrarily and think, oh, okay, well, you see that building? Then that one will be destroyed. It was very significant and intentional what Jesus was saying. If you study the ministry of Jesus on this earth, you will discover that Jesus, through his teaching, through his parables, through even his actions, is indicating that the temple had come to symbolize all that was wrong with Israel and Israel's failure to keep the covenant that God had instituted with them. The temple was the symbol of how bad it had become. In fact, we in Mark, we read about where Jesus went into the temple and he cleansed the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and for a brief moment interrupted the whole sacrificial system. Okay, when he was doing that, it was symbolic of God's judgment on the temple and the leaders of Israel and it was prophetic about what would eventually come. Now, even more scandalous, then Jesus saying that the temple was experiencing the judgment of God was that Jesus had been indicating in his ministry that the center of worship, the center of God's redeeming, healing, reconciling work in the world was not the temple, it was in him. It was in Jesus himself. Throughout his teaching, that's what Jesus is communicating. You remember his message was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what Jesus taught, all right? And so, so he's saying, Jesus is saying that that really is taking place in him. The day was coming when sa animal sacrifices would no longer be necessary because Jesus, the Lamb of God, would be the once and for all sacrifice for all the sin of humanity. That would be Jesus. In fact, when Jesus died on the cross, Scripture says that, that the veil in the temple, which separated the Holy of Holies, the Holy of Holies is the place believed where, where the presence of God was, the veil that separated that place was torn in two, and the Bible says from top to bottom, as if God ripped that veil in two, declaring that the way to God, the way to the kingdom, was not through the temple, it was through Jesus, this sacrifice for our sins. Okay? So that's what he's communicating. Now, after he makes this incredible prophetic statement about the temple being destroyed, they go for a hike. So they hike up on the Mount of Olives, which sits about 150 feet above Jerusalem. They're sitting on the side of this mountain. They're looking over the city of Jerusalem and staring right at the temple. And four of the disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, kind of move up close to Jesus. And privately, they go, um, so that stuff you were talking about, like, when's that going to happen? Because <laughs> this is catastrophic. I mean, to... To talk about an event that would utterly destroy this massive building, the temple would be utterly destroyed. They're like, um, what, what might be the signs that, that that's coming? Can you fill us in when this might happen? Now, here's the key to the whole chapter. It's also recorded in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. The whole key to the chapter is to understand that all of what Jesus is about to say is in response to that question. When is, the, when is the temple going to be destroyed? When can we expect this to happen? Jesus' response is the rest of this chapter. Okay? It's key to understanding this. All right? So, Jesus goes on to talk about three different things in these first 13 verses. The first thing in your notes that he talks about is he says there will be birth pains that lead up to this destruction. 
Okay, the birth analogy, that metaphor is pretty common in Jewish language in talking about God birthing his plan for new creation. So they would have understood that, okay? Now there are three aspects to these birth pains that Jesus says in Mark 13. First of all, he says there's gonna be false teaching. So he says, be careful, be on your guard. There's gonna be false teaching, and particularly, there are gonna be people who rise up and claim to be the Messiah, who claim to be the anointed one from God sent to make all the wrong things about Israel right, to put them in their rightful place. All right, they're gonna claim they're the Messiah, but, but they're not, so don't be deceived. Secondly, he says, there are gonna be social convulsions. He says there's gonna be wars, and there's gonna be rumors of war. It's gonna be a very unsettled time leading up to this destruction. And then finally, he says there'll be natural disasters. There'll be earthquakes and famines, okay? So the next thing there in your notes that he says is that they should expect persecution. There's gonna be persecution, all right? Jesus is telling them beforehand what lies ahead, and he's not saying things are gonna be great for you, it's gonna be comfortable and safe and rosy and wonderful. He says the opposite. He says things are going to get ugly and it is gonna cost you dearly to be devoted to me. You're gonna be persecuted, you're gonna be beaten. I mean, ultimately, most of them would give their lives because of their devotion to Jesus, and Jesus tells them that's what's gonna happen, but he says a couple things about this persecution. He says the persecution will be a catalyst to communicate the message of Jesus throughout the world. That's gonna happen, and secondly, he says whenever you're arrested, and he doesn't even say if you're arrested. He says when you're arrested, don't worry about what you're gonna say because when they question you, the Holy Spirit's gonna actually give you the words and, and you just say what the Holy Spirit tells you to say, okay? Now, the final thing is that he, he says this time is gonna require great perseverance on their part. They're gonna have to persevere. Now, we have the benefit today of history we can look back over history and see how these things began to transpire and how they were fulfilled. All we have to do is flip over a few books till we get to the book of Acts and we can begin to read about the beginning of fulfillment of some of the things Jesus said. All right, in the book of Acts, over and over we see the persecution begin. We see them being beaten because of their devotion to Jesus. And there's one incident of persecution that is particularly important, and that is when a man named Stephen, who was a devout follower of Jesus, is stoned. Now in Colorado, we need to clarify what that means. <laughs> right? It's a new day here. So Stephen, this devoted follower of Jesus, speaks out, confronts the religious leaders, they drag him out of the city, and they pick up rocks, and they throw rocks at him until he's dead. They stone him to death, all right? There's a guy who buys a ticket to watch the stoning, actually it was free, He's in the audience giving approval to what's happening because he himself is also a persecutor of Christians. His name is Saul. Later, he would encounter Jesus. It would so transform his life that, that his name would become Paul and he would write half of our New Testament. Okay, now here's what happened when Stephen was killed. When Stephen was killed, the church, followers of Jesus, who had stayed in Jerusalem, scattered 
all over the known world. And when they scattered, they took the message of Jesus with them. So the message, the gospel, the good news of Jesus began to spread all over the world, and, and the catalyst was Stephen being stoned to death. It was persecution. Over and over, we see in the book of Acts where, where people are brought before leaders and rulers, and the Holy Spirit gives them the words to say. Look at one simple example, Acts chapter 4 and verse 13. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note, I love this part, that these men had been with Jesus. Okay? Now, we also have the benefit of history. We can look back over world history, and we can know that there was a four-year war from A.D. 69 to A.D. 70, a Roman-Jewish war. There were four Roman emperors that came to power all in one year, in A.D. 69. Four different emperors who came to power in Rome. And each one, each time they came to power, they came to power with brutal violence and civil war. Each one. Four of those in one year. I mean, you talk about wars and rumors of war. It was an incredibly unsettled time. All right, one of those rulers, emperors, was a guy named Nero. Nero is the guy who had Paul beheaded because of his devotion to Jesus, all right? Another one, finally, a guy by the name of Vespasian, when he was making his way into Rome to be crowned the emperor of Rome, his adopted son Titus was making his way with with the Roman army into the city of Jerusalem where he literally destroyed the city, including the temple, burned it to the ground, and crucified thousands and thousands of Jews. All happened in A.D. 70. This Jewish historian Josephus said that it was such desperate times, people were starving to death, they were fighting over scraps of food, they turned to cannibalism in order to survive, and more Jews killed each other than even Romans killing Jews. It was a time of unparalleled devastation and despair. Jesus said, all men will hate you because of me. Under Nero, there was vicious persecution of Christians. He blamed Christians for burning Rome, so he took Christians, impaled them, lit them on fire as torches to light the city. Unbelievable devastation and destruction. And 40 or so years earlier, Jesus told his disciples it all was going to happen. It was coming. He warned them that it was coming. And his counsel to them was that they stand firm. In all of the persecution that led up to this destruction of the temple, they were to persevere. The destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 is a hugely significant event in the vindication of who Jesus was and who he is and validation of what he said. Jesus told those disciples in verse 30 of Mark 13 that it would happen in their generation. And 40 or so years later, it all happened in the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. Now, we started with two questions. One, what was Jesus talking about? The second one, and maybe more importantly, is what does that mean to you and to me today? What does that have to do with us today? That's what I've been wrestling with and praying about leading up to giving this talk this weekend. 
And, and here's what I feel like God is speaking to my heart. The crux of Jesus' message when he was on this earth was that the kingdom of heaven, the dwelling of God, and, and the kingdom of, of men, the, the world of humanity, had come together in the person of Jesus. Heaven and earth came together in the person of Jesus. His message, as we said before, was simple. Repent, turn, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The center of, of God's redeeming, reconciling, healing work the, 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 the full expression of God's presence was not the temple. It was in Jesus himself. Jesus came. He lived his life. He died on a cross. He rose again from the dead. And then he ascended to the dwelling of God, heaven, to be with the Father. So where does that leave our broken world? Where does that leave us in 2013, followers of Jesus? Where does that leave us? Where is the healing, reconciling, restorative work of God in the world today? Where is the expression of God's presence and his kingdom today? It is in his church. And by church, I don't mean organization. I don't mean denomination. I mean what the Greek word mean, the, means. The Greek word for church is ekklesia, and that word literally means called out ones. It is in you and in me. Whatever walk of life you're in, whatever your vocation, whether you're wealthy or poor, whether you're educated or not, it is in people who have surrendered their lives to follow Jesus, who are filled with his spirit. Remember what Jesus said before he ascended to heaven. He told the disciples, go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he will empower you to be my witnesses to, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Jesus said, in fact, you will do more than you even seen me do because the Spirit will be in you. That's what Jesus said. Paul later would write that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So where does heaven and, and earth come together? It comes together in people who are surrendered fully to Jesus, filled with his Spirit. We are those people. We are that place, the healing redemptive, reconciling work of God in the world happens today through his church. So how do we respond to that? What do we do with that? Here's the conclusion I came to. The way we respond is we choose to live bravely in the way of Jesus. We choose to live bravely in the way of Jesus. Last week, I spent Monday through Thursday in New Orleans, Louisiana. I had never been to New Orleans. And it just so happened that we were there over a little party they have called Mardi Gras. <laughs> have you ever heard of this? Never been there before. I walked on Bourbon Street on Fat Tuesday, Mardi Gras. That is a weird place. <laughs> if you don't want know much about Mardi Gras, it, it, it basically is where like a million people, no exaggeration, all come to one street in the French Quarter of New Orleans called Bourbon Street. Many of those people pretend to be someone they're not. They dress in all sorts of wild, flamboyant costumes. 
many of them, not all, but many of them indulge in this massive party, uh, lots of immorality, every kind of immorality that you can imagine in your life. And it is, it's this crazy party that, it, Mardi Gras, the word, it, it literally means Fat Tuesday, but it, it's a two-week party. This year it was a three-week party because the Super Bowl kicked it off. So for three weeks, it's nothing but just crazy, like you ain't never seen crazy before, all right? And then at midnight on Fat Tuesday, the police come in, they shut everything down, they push all the people out, and because Lent begins, so those people pretending to be someone they're not now pretend to be religious for six weeks of Lent. That's kind of how the whole thing works. There's not really a history to it, some great story. It's just an excuse to have a massive party. Now, I didn't go there for Mardi Gras. I went there at the invitation of a friend who's planting a church in the greater New Orleans area. And I joined a friend who planted a church in Ogden, Utah. So we met up in New Orleans, and it w we were there to kind of talk to their leadership team to experience what God's doing in this brand new church. It's like a year and a half old, and it wasn't planted like, like we gave birth to Windsor, and, and we invited several hundred people to, to go to Timberline, Windsor, and form a church. This guy went and just began to build relationships with people to start a church. They don't even meet on weekends in a building in services right now. They, they only meet in neighborhoods where they meet in a small group context. There's 160 of them, already just meeting in neighborhoods in, in small groups. Most of those 160 people have come to give their life to Jesus through this young church. So their stories are unbelievable. I mean, they're brand new to faith. They're brand new to learning the Bible. They have all kinds of baggage because their lives were a mess and they've just encountered Jesus and it's changed everything and they're just growing and learning. Incredible experience. And, and my friend from Ogden, he planted a church six years ago in Ogden with a vision to reach the most desperate, broken people in the entire city. And so today they run about 1,400 people of the most amazing stories of life transformation that you can ever imagine. And so we spent this whole week talking about what Jesus can do through people who really give themselves fully to him. So I come back from Mardi Gras, not with the hangover, but with a deep burning conviction to live my life more bravely in the way of Jesus. A deep conviction to be an expression of God's presence in the world that he's called me to, to live bravely, to love bravely. Now, I don't know exactly, I don't know exactly what the future holds. There are a lot of people who claim to know exactly like, I don't know, it may be that some of the signs we read about that led up to the destruction of the temple will also be similar to the day when, when, when God fully consummates his redemptive plan in a new heaven and new earth. I, I don't really know. There's some people who think they know exactly what will happen and what date it's going to happen. I don't know that. I don't know what's going to happen in America. I don't know what the future holds. Some people think they know that too. Some say it's going to get a lot worse in America. And it might. That's possible, all right? Some say that we will experience eventually the same kind of persecution that Jesus talked to those disciples about in Mark chapter 13. I don't know if that's gonna happen or not. It might. Here's what I do know. We are not called to live in fear. We are called to cling tightly to Jesus, to put our trust and our hope in him, and to live bravely in the direction of his heart no matter what happens. If things get better or if things get worse, we just live a life devoted to the cause of Jesus.
We are to live a life that is bigger than ourselves, that's bigger than the American dream, a life of significance in the direction of the kingdom of God because we are the place where the presence of God meets the brokenness of our world. It is in his church, and there's no plan B. It's always been his spirit living in in broken people like you and me that bring together the dwelling of God and the dwelling of humanity, his healing, restorative work, and the brokenness of people all around us. Our hope is not in our government. Our hope is not in our culture. It's not in humanity. Our hope is squarely centered in the one who came, who lived, who was crucified, who rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and sent his spirit to live mightily in us. Now, let me finish with this one last story, all right? My son, Zach, he's 20, and he was telling me about a conversation he had recently, and I'm gonna brag a little bit about my son, and I'm 100% biased, okay, 100%. He's my boy. He's telling me about this conversation he had with a couple of friends. These friends are not sure that God even exists. They don't know if they even believe in God, and one of them's going through really difficult time in their life. And so my son Zach's listening to him, and finally this is what he says. He said, I believe that we are all broken, all humanity is broken, because we have strayed from our intended story. But I also believe that there is a God who is actively engaged in our world to offer us a better story than the one we've chosen. And one of his friends said, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. And as I was praying about this moment on this weekend, the prayer in my heart was simply to invite some of you to live in a better story than the story you're living right now. To live in the story that God intended for your life, the God who made you, the God who knows everything about you and loves you anyway, to live in that story rather than the story you've chosen. And for some of you, you started in that story, but you've strayed. That happens sometimes, doesn't it? It does to me. It's subtle. It's not like a conscious choice. But somehow, sometimes I find myself straying from his story and starting to live my own story. And the biggest difference between his story and my story is that I am the center of my story. Jesus is the center of his story. And so for some of you, I want to invite you back to live in his story, the story he intended for your life. And so if we could just bow our heads and close our eyes, I want us to pray right now for people who need to come to his story. God, you know our hearts, each and every one of us in this room. You know our successes and our failures. You know our hopes and dreams. You know the devastation and despair. You are indeed a God who is actively engaged, appealing, imploring us to a better story than the one we've chosen on our own. And I pray for people in this room who 
This is a moment, a moment of faith where they are acknowledging they're living their own story. You are allowing faith to be mighty in their heart to believe that Jesus, you really were the once and for all sacrifice, that you really did provide forgiveness for us and there's nothing we can do to earn it. There's no way we can be good enough so we can only by faith just receive the gift of forgiveness and then turn from living our own story and surrender to live in yours where you're king, where you are Lord of our lives. Lord, for those who began that story and have strayed, thank you for the gift of repentance that enables us to change, to turn from going that way and to go a new way. We surrender to you. Empower us, O oh God, to be a people who live out the expression of your presence and your life and your love in our broken, desperate world to announce that Jesus, he really is Lord. Whether things are good or whether things are bad, may we live lives fully devoted to you, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you this morning gave your life to Jesus for the first time, we would love to help you in that journey. We'll have a prayer team up here after the service. You could come and talk to one of them. We have a packet we'd love to put in your hands to kind of help you on that journey. And I think they even have packets back at guest services. God, we thank you for your great love for us. And Lord, we've been singing a song that's one of those that great beat, great melody, but a challenging thing to sing. May we give our hands, our feet, our very life to you, our everything to you. What would happen, oh God, if we, this community of followers of Jesus, would surrender everything? What would you do? in our world for your kingdom and your glory. May it be so of us. May we leave this place living a more full expression of your life and your love in our broken world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would